and welcome to Exploding Helicopters, still the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating films where helicopters explode. That means on each show we take a look at a film which features our favourite form of fiery aviation delight, with the simple aim of recognising the ingenuity and inventiveness which filmmakers bring to the cinematic art of exploding helicopters. My name is Will, and I'm your host and your guide through this most niche of micro-genres. On this show, we're going to be looking at a film which is a guilty pleasure for many people, the 1999 mutant shark movie, Deep Blue Sea. To help me with that, I'm joined by a man who's been genetically modified to be the perfect podcast guest. He's bigger, smarter, faster and meaner. It's Jay Clerk from Life vs. Film. Welcome to the show, Jay. Uh, thank you, Will. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. And I thought there was some confusion. I thought this was the Exploding Shark podcast. Is that not correct? Many other things tend to explode in the same film, so um, in this film it's obviously sharks, so uh, happy to throw that into uh, into the mix. Okay. But uh, do you want to take a minute to tell people about your sort of uh, websites and podcasting activities? Yes, thank you. I write, my own site is, is lifeversusfilm.com. I've been writing there for about five years now, four or five years, mainly focusing on the thousand more movies that you must see before you die list, which does not overlap with today's topic of conversation, bizarrely, uh, <laughs> sadly, I'd say. But uh, more more than that, I am the host of the Lambcast, the official podcast at the Large Association of Movie Blogs, uh, which, of course, you have guested on many times now. Yeah, we cover pretty much anything in, in film, and you can find us by searching Lambcast on iTunes. Your 1001 list, it's something of a sort of task, uh, a sort of Sisyphean task, or a bit like <laughs> sort of painting the fourth bridge in, in the sense that they're constantly... Uh, updating that list aren't they so i'm not sure how much hope you've really got of, of finishing well yes it's the thousand and one movies you must see before you die which currently has 1165 films on it so don't because they add more every year and they do take some off but those of us going through the list we don't take them off we just add them to the pile and they add 14 or so every year a few years ago they added 50 in one go because they hate us i can only assume and yeah i'm not even a third of the way through. I've been doing it for since I started my site. So, well, maybe uh, maybe they'll add Deep Blue Sea to that list. Uh, I can at only some hope. Point. But uh, may- maybe at some point before you uh, before you finish. So <laughs> there is there is let's uh, let's I'll I'll dangle that carrot in front of you to kind of like keep you keep you going with that particular project. This is the official start of the petition. <laughs> Um, but before we sort of uh, sink our teeth into today's movie, what have you seen lately in the in the world of film that's uh, caught your interest? Uh, something I saw recently is actually something you recommended for me, which is, is from said 1001 list. It's 1955's Night of the Hunter, ah. uh, directed by Charles Lawton and uh, starring Robert Mitchum, which I, I put out a call at the end of last year for people to recommend films from the 1001 list for me to see this year. This is one that you very kindly selected, and I thoroughly enjoyed, if that's the right word to say for Night of the Hunter. It's, it's not the most enjoyable of films, shall we say, but it's, it is very good. Uh, particularly Robert Mitchum, who is, I'm not very familiar with his work, but he is amazing in this. Yeah, it's definitely one of his strongest performances, and it's a really intense film. It's told from the perspective of sort of two very young children, and, and there is a certain sort of fairy tale sort of quality to the filmmaking. And yeah, Robert Mitchum plays this fantastically evil preacher. Yeah, Mitchum's character is very, very interesting in the film because he talks as say he's a preacher. He he believes that everything he's doing is kind of right in the eyes of the Lord. Like he talks to him about, talks to God about um, the fact that killing is okay and the murders are okay because the Bible is full of killing. 
so therefore it must be okay. And it's just when he goes to the the kind of the girly shows, I think he refers to them. That's the <laughs> only thing that God might frown upon. Everything else is fine. So all of this tormenting of children he's doing, that's okay, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's also a beautifully directed film by Charles Lawton, and yes. um, who was a sort of very famous actor, famously portrayed the hunchback of uh, Notre Dame. And he was, uh, there's a very sort of sad story in terms of this film, because it wasn't some, it's a film which has become sort of critically um, acclaimed, but only sort of in the decades after its release. At the time, it didn't receive, um, my understanding is it didn't receive sort of uh, many particular plaudits and Lawton was so sort of scarred by the experience of making this film that he basically never directed um, another another film again and and if anybody watching uh this film I think I think you would you'd think oh my goodness you know here's somebody who really um has a fantastic visual imagination really knows how to get fantastic performances out of actors and it's uh, it's really sad that he his experience of this uh, his experience of the, of making this film was such that he never felt that he could direct another film again yeah I, I didn't actually click that it was the same charles lawton the actor uh but yes you're, you're correct and it's a shame he didn't direct anymore because as you say the film is is very well paced it's beautiful it's very well shot and it's got some great characters so that, that is a shame so the film um that i uh, watched this week that i wanted to sort of mention was uh, a film that came out a few years ago in 2012 um it's a british film called uh, shadow dancer and it's set in the early 90s and it's about a member of the ira who becomes uh, an MI5 uh, informer and it stars Clive Owen, um, Aidan Gillen and Gillian Anderson. And it's a, f- it's a fairly sort of low key thriller, which there's no great, um, it's all really sort of about trust and deception and, uh, it's more of a sort of a, a low key downbeat, um, sort of a spy type thriller. But the sort of reason I mention it again is because it raised the question for me as to whether Clive Owen can actually act and uh, I don't know uh, I don't know where you fall in this particular argument Jay I've thrown my cards on down on the table I don't think he can act where where are you on this I think he is a solid leading man who is has charisma and a screen presence but I don't think he'll be bothering the Oscars anytime soon because mm. he's got some films where I really enjoyed his performance in Children of Men, Inside Man are two that come to mind, and I, I have a soft spot for Shoot 'em Up, and I think he's he's at least good in all of those films. He's not terrible. He's he's decent in Sin City, you know. And I, I've never I've never watched his performances and found him terrible. He's never taken anything away from the film, but you could swap him out with a lot of other actors as well. If you took him out and replaced him with, for example, Thomas Jane, I don't think you'd lose anything. <laughs> Well, I think um, if you took Thomas Jane out of a film, you shouldn't, re- you know, that you've done you've done that film a service just by, just oh. by doing that. Oh, you and I disagree, um, sir. But I, I, I really don't find Clive Owen that great in Sin City. For me, I, every time he comes on screen in that film, I just cringe because it's a film I really like, and I just his performance in that film for me it just hits the wrong note and i just find it really really um irritating um croupier which is a another a film of his which is very sort of acclaimed and again there's just something about his performance it just doesn't hit the right note for me i think it's it tends to be films where he's got a a lot of um voiceover and narration i don't know what it is the, the, both those films have voiceovers, and I, I, I really hate his, I really hate him and his performance in both those films. So, I don't think he's, uh, I don't know if he's in Killer Elite again, another film where for me he's just basically awful 
in that film. But yeah, I, I'm so glad that he never got the James Bond gig. Yeah, I don't think he would have been great in that role. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Kira Lee. I tend to shy away from Statham's lead roles. They don't, <laughs> they don't tend to bode well, I find. But I haven't seen Krupia either, but I can see what you mean about his, his narration in Sin City, because he's got, he do, he's never very excited when he's talking, I find. It, just playing back the narration in my mind. He's never kind of, it's never very engaging in terms of what he's saying and impe- dra- dragging your attention in. Sin City gets by on style and dialogue, mm. I find, rather than performances. It remains for me to uh, to convince more people in this world about <laughs> the, the awfulness of uh, Clive Owen, but uh, I'm 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 not dissuaded by your uh, by your praise for some of his performances. So I'm, I'm going to continue this uh, campaign to wake up the world to uh, to Clive Owen. I'm not praising him. I'm just saying he's not bad. You know, he's he's middle of the road. There's a lot better, but there's a, there's a lot worse, shall we say? Okay. All right, well, let's we'll uh, get on to the lot worse, shall we? Let's, yeah, we'll, we're, and the, yeah, there's definitely, that's, I think that's a good cue into, uh, the, the film. So let's dive into, uh, Deep Blue Sea, which features some, uh, very questionable performances, uh, to say the least. In the most advanced research facility in the world. Wow. Beneath its glassy surface, a world of gliding monsters. A team of specialists is working against the clock. Did someone order the fish? On an experiment to benefit mankind. Sharks never show any loss of brain activity as they age. We're this close to the reactivation of human brain cell. But before they can save millions of lives... Tell me I didn't see that. They recognize that gun. It's impossible. Sharks do not swim backwards. They can't. They'll have to find a way to save their own. So Deep Blue Sea came out in 1999 and it was directed by Rennie Harlan and stars Samuel L. Jackson, Saffron Burrows and unfortunately LL Cool J. The film has a pretty simple plot. Researchers have genetically altered the brains of captive sharks in an effort to cure Alzheimer's. And uh, like any good science experiment in a movie, this genetic meddling goes horribly wrong. After a tropical storm floods the research complex, the super-intelligent super-sharks start hunting down the researchers. I know, Jay, that you're a sort of big fan of this film. Uh, do you want to sort of say a bit about your history with it and kind of why you uh, wanted to talk about it today? Yes, we did a, a show on the Lambcast last year of our Guilty Pleasure movies, and this was my number two. I have seen this film more times than I can recall. It's at least a dozen, perhaps two. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I have a deep enjoyment for this film. It's one of the earliest DVDs I bought. It's a film I've seen an awful lot of times, more than most other films probably. And I think there are parallels that you could draw to my favorite film, Jurassic Park. The two share a lot in common in terms of genetically modified creatures. Uh, a small group of people, a skeleton crew on a, a, a restricted location during a storm. Everything goes wrong. Animals eat them. Samuel L. Jackson doesn't survive. Many things in common with Jurassic Park, but that is obviously a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should point out. <laughs> but yeah, Deep Blue Sea is a lot of fun. There's some great deaths in it. There's some great explosions in it, which we'll get to later. It's ridiculous. You know, if you sit down and, and go through the entire plot, which sadly we're not going to do today, but it doesn't make a lick of sense. And I just find it a lot of fun, personally. It's it's something I can chuck on and just enjoy and switch off. It's the same reason that I love the Roland Emmerich version of Godzilla. You know, it's stupid, but it's fun. 
I think that's a pretty good summary of this film. It's a real sort of popcorn movie. It's sort of turn your turn your brain off for uh, for two hours and uh, just sort of uh, sit back and enjoy some sort of heightened silliness. And uh, Rennie Harlan seems to sort of specialise in that type of film. I don't know how uh, familiar you are with the rest of his uh, works, but uh, he does seem to uh, regularly turn out films which you could describe in exactly uh, that sort of way. Yes, well, we recently discussed Die Hard 2 not that long ago on the, on the Lambcast, and that is, again, turn your brain off and just, just enjoy the, the silliness. The same with, with Cliffhanger, you know. Um, the Long Kiss Goodnight, you could argue, is his best film, because that, that has a plot that makes a certain kind of sense, which makes it stand out from the rest of his work. Uh, but yeah, I, I would put Deep Blue Sea as, as the pinnacle of his career, easily. You talked about um, the fact that this film had some uh, had some good deaths in it. Um, what um, you know, it's probably also got one of the most famous sort of on-screen deaths in Hollywood history. Uh, is that your sort of favourite in the film, or uh, is there a uh, do you, is there another one that you particularly like in this well, movie? That that one is the is what I saw first of the film. I think if it, if people haven't seen the film, they've probably at least seen the death that occurs roughly halfway through. To one of the main characters, which a friend of mine said, "Oh, you have to come around and see this bit of a film one day." And he he fast forwarded the VHS to <laughs> to that point in the movie and just kind of showed the speech, showed the death. That's amazing. And I was like, okay, I kind of want to see the bit before and the bit after. And but he was correct. That is the best part of the film, and that is, if not the best death, because actually the the death itself isn't that impressive. It's it's more kind of the build up and the surprise. I would say the best. The best death is probably... Um, I'm going to go with Stellan Skarsgård's character mm. as having a big impact. You don't, you don't actually see him die, but you see like the effect that he has on, on the situation and how he's kind of the, the reason the whole place floods. And his, his draws the most impact, I would say. I would agree with you. I think that his death is, is probably uh, my favourite in the film. And it kind of occurred to me that he's he's sort of almost arguably on screen more after his death than he is <laughs> before it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we <can see> that. <laughs> Which yeah. is very unfortunate for any actor, but um, that's the way it worked out for him in this. <laughs> that's very true, yeah. Um, yes, and, and some of the other deaths that happen later on, they're, they're all, there are no bad deaths. I quite like the bird's death, personally. Uh, it's a very small one, but it's the only one that gets eaten whole of this cast. So, <laughs> a very, oh, such a cruel, such a cruel fate for that poor, for that poor parrot. Yeah. Well, it hasn't had a good life anyway. It's a parrot that's been kept underwater in a confined space. I just, I think that's animal cruelty to begin with. So maybe it's a blessing that it's been eaten. Mm. Not to mention, uh, not to mention having to spend all day with LL Cool J as well, which, uh, <laughs> you know, for, if, if ever there's, uh, uh an example of, uh, animal cruelty, uh, that <laughs> is, uh, that is, uh, surely it. I'm sensing you're not a fan of, of Mr. Mr. J in this film. I'm not a fan of him, but the, you know, there's something about rappers, um, sort of trying their hand as actors where, you know, they're uniformly awful, but somehow they just kind of get away with it. They always seem to get a pass. And maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's because no one really expects that much from them or something. But, you know, when um, when a parrot delivers better line readings than yourself, I think you've got trouble as, a, as an actor. And, you know, he uh, he has one of my, he has a truly, gru- uh, LL Cool J has a truly gruesome mo- moment in this film in terms of, in terms of acting. There's a, uh, he's required to, uh, 
sort of at a at a sort of low point in the film he's required to deliver a motivational speech to the uh, remaining survivors <laughs> where he says oh you know can i get an amen can i you know and the the, uh, the palpable lack of enthusiasm from uh... <laughs> well, yeah, that that follows one of his best scenes though where he's delivering his his legacy to camera that's one that's a moment i've gone to <laughs> since the first proper viewing and i've never made an omelet but i feel like i know how to Purely based on having seen this film. Well, that that kind of um, touches on one one th- one aspect of this film, which is quite sort of interesting, is the sort of tone of the film because it combines a lot of kind of classic sort of horror gore with some you know quite goofy uh, humour, most of which is provided by the uh, aforesaid Mr. Cool J. And you know, how did you feel that that sort of balance came off between the sort of you know the uh, limb dismembering, uh, you know, parrot swallowing uh, gore and the kind of uh, more sort of goofy humorous moments? I, I find they often go quite well together. I mean, I, I like start liking this same time I started liking kind of the Final Destination series, which has a similarly tongue-in-cheek look at dispatching young people in gruesome ways. And I think this this film's interesting in that some of the characters seem to know they're in a film particularly Samuel L. Jackson's character. It's kind of meta at times, like when he arrives on on the, uh, the research facility and he basically says, show me the entire place. And so we get a nice... We're basically, he's basically shown the blueprints and we're showing the blueprints with him of the entire f- facility. But when he walks through the gate, the gate is locked and he just stares for a couple of seconds too long at that gate locking and there's a, an ominous music cue in the background. And I'm thinking, that's completely not realistic at all he shouldn't have any qualms about being in this in this place but it's just the gate is shut dun 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 i don't know if that was part of something they were trying to do with his character because there's a whole sort of bait and switch move that the film pulls here where they are building up his character throughout the sort of the first um 20 minutes or half an hour however long he's um, actually in the film building him up to be this um, sort of character who's got this kind of dramatic backstory of uh, some sort of mountaineering rescue where he was responsible for kind of getting all these well all these people saving all these lives on a mountain but obviously not it seems he didn't save um, everyone which is this kind of guilt that he's uh, that he's sort of carrying with him which you kind of think is going to be his motivation at some sort of moment of crisis um, sort of uh, in this film. But then uh, obviously the film then pulls a handbrake turn and goes in a different direction after uh, after it sort of kills it off. So I wonder if it was um, sort of uh, part of kind of building up his uh, his character like that. And uh, that particular move reminded me, I don't know if you've seen the film um, Executive Decision. I have not, no. It's got uh, Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal in and um, That's probably why I haven't seen it. I understand your prejudice. <laughs> but uh yeah, there's uh Kurt Russell plays this sort of uh, computer geek, Steven Seagal plays Steven Seagal, and they're paired together to kind of save the world from these uh terrorists and uh a similar move is pulled where uh you kind of uh, they're building up sort of Steven Seagal's character, but then uh Basically, the same thing happens to him as happens to Samuel Jackson's film. He disappears out of the film and uh, is left to Kurt Russell as this kind of bespectacled uh, computer geek to kind of to sort of save uh, to save the day. I, I will admit that in Deep Blue Sea, after Sam Jackson is no longer in the film, it takes a bit of a downturn and is less enjoyable because his character, as as always when he's in a film, his character is probably the best character. Whilst we're sort of talking about Samuel Jackson and this film, I mean, I think it's become obvious to everybody in, in recent years that he really doesn't care about the films <laughs> he makes anymore. Um, he cares about the paycheck. He definitely cares about the paycheck. 
And I don't know what you think, but I feel that this is almost the film where that basically, where that switch happened, where something went off in the mind of Samuel L. Jackson, where he realised that he could just basically get away with being in films and being Samuel L. Jackson, and people liked it, producers uh, wanted to kind of cast it and put it in films, and, you know, if you look at the films that he did before this, and you look at the films that he did afterwards... You know, there's, there, there seems to be a definite sort of drop off in, in sort of quality. You know, he did, seems that he did some more interesting films prior to this. And whereas afterwards, it's a lot more sort of showy cameos. And, you know, if he is in a lead role, it tends to be some sort of slightly down at heel uh, DTV effort. I think I disagree with you. I think there are some uh, clunkers before Deep Blue Sea. For example, I've not seen it, but I don't hear good things about Amos and Andrew from 1993. <laughs> A co-starring with Nicolas Cage. I don't know why I haven't seen that film because it sounds amazing. But, and and afterwards he does have some some of his his good roles. For example, Unbreakable is just a year later, and that's a great role for him, I think. Mm. And of course he he's and The Incredibles. I know you haven't seen it, but he's very good in The Incredibles, and he's he's continually worked with Tarantino since then. But there are perhaps more bad films afterwards. You get the likes of Snakes on a Plane, which again is a guilty pleasure for me. Oh, I, I would, you know, I'd happily sit down with you and watch Deep Blue Sea sort of any day of the week. But if you, if you pulled snakes on a plane out of your DVD collection, I think, um, I would probably, you'd probably hear me, um, say that I've got an urgent appointment somewhere else that I've just remembered. I saw that in a theatre on opening weekend and I have no shame in doing so. <laughs> but it, in more recent years, he has been in some, some dire, remakes like the old boy remake robocop that kind of thing if he if it's just he he seems to not care anymore i always think that if he is in a good film it tends to be more by you know accident in, in <laughs> the sort of you know if you throw enough darts you're going to hit the bullseye eventually that type of that type of uh strategy maybe that is his plan maybe he just has no kind of filter and so he just says yes to everything in the hope that it will be good we kind of sort of touched on this um, uh, quite a lot already, but uh, we might as well sort of address it sort of head on. I, you know, I've got my own view, which you you, you may well have already uh, divined. But what do you think of the acting sort of across the board in this uh, in this film? Awards worthy. <laughs> and by awards, I do of course mean the Razzies, because it's not great, shall we say? Well, they, they haven't exactly assembled a stellar cast here. I mean, th- these are all. <laughs> people that weren't terribly well known before this film and have remained so afterwards <laughs> like start your star is thomas jane as carter blake that's four first names for you right there and this the female leader saffron burrows which should not be a name familiar to anyone because she is a terrible actress i've never liked saffron burrows in anything and then you've got i quite like Mac- michael rapaport on the basis of he's always annoying in everything he does and he just seems to stick with that and so fair play to him and then you just got like Ida Totoro, Jacqueline McKenzie, you know, people who crop up here and there but don't do an awful lot. So the acting here isn't amazing, but it's a film about genetically modified sharks killing people. Were you expecting amazing acting? <laughs> well, I, I guess I just thought that they would find some slightly better actors. <laughs> they did. Here's the thing. There is a great actor in this film who has zero lines. <laughs> Ronnie Cox is in this film. I did not realise this. Watched the opening scene and thought, huh, Samuel Jackson has his hand on, on a, a guy who looks like Ronnie Cox's chair. And he doesn't say anything, so I just thought nothing more of it. And then I look on IMDb, and Ronnie Cox is in this film 
And says nothing. If you recall the scene at the start where Saffron Burroughs yes. is convincing Sam Jackson to office. come to the island. In the office. That's, yes. that's Ronnie Cox out there. And he doesn't do a damn thing. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I think you could say the same thing. I mean, how many lines does Stellan Skarsgård actually have in this film? You know, he's, he's kind of like European acting royalty and, you know, he's just sort of slumming it in this. He only has about three lines and then the rest of the film he's, um, either being dismembered or sort of, you know, being towed around <laughs> by a shark or, or floating around as a dead, or as a dead corpse. Or so. smoking in an underground, in an underwater lab, <laughs> which, just no, just no, and he offers a shark a cigarette. <laughs> and it, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, some of the casting here really bizarre. I just thought they could have got surely they could have got somebody other than Saffron Burrows. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. She is an atrocious actress, and she has so much dialogue in this film so much of it would test even you know Meryl Streep to deliver some of the dialogue in this film uh, to put it into uh, the mouth of Saffron Burroughs is is to uh, invite disaster yeah there's an early scene where there's a surprise birthday party for her just to just to kind of force a little bit of tension she has to come out onto the surface and it's all dark and there's no one around and it's supposed to be a bit scary and everyone jumps out surprised but I every scene before then I got the impression that she was this really cold standoffish, had-no-friends kind of person who would begrudge anyone for even mentioning a birthday, let alone celebrating it. And I'm thinking, why are these people celebrating her her existence? She, she can't be friends with these people. It's it's a character played by Saffron Burroughs. They almost hate her. <laughs> I, I just got no kind of warmth or humanity from her, and yet they're here having a party in her honour. Well, and, and what also sort of doesn't make much sense in that particular moment is the fact that they've... You know, they've only got 48 hours to <laughs> come up with some sort of results which will save their research project and save the company. And, you know, everybody stops to have a surprise birthday party. Well, how about how, how, about how everyone still goes home for the weekend? Yes. Apart well, from this skeleton crew of seven people. Well, you'd stop <laughs> that, wouldn't you? You'd, yes. you'd just say... <laughs> You say, okay, all, all non-essential personnel, you're still staying here. You can get out if you need medical attention, but that's it. Everyone else is staying here because we have stuff to do and it's important and the whole company is resting on it. You just, ah, oh. There is, like I said, the plot of this film makes no sense. And there's a bit I want to get to when we get to the explosion, but I'll wait until we get to that point. Well, that's very, uh, very disciplined of you. But, uh, okay, well, I mean, let's, let's deal with some of these, uh, dumber moments, uh, in the film. What for you was the kind of daftest moment in, uh, in this film? Well, um, the fact that the sharks learn how to swim backwards. <laughs> because the whole point is they've increased their, their brain size because they're harvesting brain cells to cure, try and cure yep. Alzheimer's. Somehow this film makes trying to cure Alzheimer's a bad thing. And they've put some kind of super intelligent, thing to make the sharks more intelligent because that what could go wrong there and in doing so the sharks have learned how to swim backwards now i think i'm more intelligent than a shark i can't swim backwards <laughs> because that's not how biology works you don't develop new muscles or learn how to use them in new ways you just like recognizing the gun fine attacking the cameras fine working together in pack hunting in packs fine swimming backwards no just just no it's it's like them suddenly learning how to juggle or something, or or growing an appendable thumb, <sighs> opposable thumb. Yeah, I I can see I can see how that would um, irk you. Yeah. I think uh, I think for myself there's a, a couple of moments that that really just struck me as uh, as 
particularly ridiculous. Um, I think the fact that quite a lot of the, the cast in this film actually seem to be capable of outrunning water, which um, <laughs> I, I'm i pretty sure... Highly is, pressurized uh, water at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that that is impossible. And also, I mean, just how long does everybody stand in front of that big pane of glass as it slowly cracks? Just watching it. Even, just watching even when it. a big chunk the size of a shoebox falls off and nearly hits one of them, yeah. they're still just stood there, kind of, oh, we should, what's, what's going on? We should maybe, oh, yeah, yeah, let's walk away now. Let's, let's flee. And Thomas Jane's character is the most physically adept person there. This is the shark wrangler who kind of uses himself as bait quite often to remove number plates from their mouths instead of using the sedatives we're showing later. Anyway, he falls over. A great deal in this film. If you were to play a drinking game with Deep Blue Sea, drink every time he falls over and you'll get <laughs> drunk by the end of it. And he's supposed to be the most athletic one there. Every occasion, he falls. Like, when the water is cracking, the glass is cracking, he falls. He's the only one who stumbles fleeing it. And when they take the um, the the injured Stellan Skarsgård out, running back from from the storm, he's the only one that falls over there as well, and it's three or four other times in the whole film he just falls over every opportunity, and it's some kind of character moment, I don't know why but it makes sense. Yeah, there's a scene uh, where they have to sort of run past a door which is about to burst open, and again he, I'm pretty sure it's him that yep. that, that falls over and slides along along the floor there. So, Everyone else yeah. runs past, you've got Michael Rappaport who is just this gangly, awkward fool he gets past fine, Thomas Jane stumbles and slips and slides his way along I don't know. Now, I was, I was trying to uh, do a bit of research to uh, substantiate this point, but sadly, I, I couldn't find anything tickly uh, definitive. But um, I'm going to run my uh, hypothesis um, sort of past yourself. But do you think that Deep Blue Sea sort of breathed new life into the sort of uh, killer shark movie? Because I don't sort of really remember too many of those sorts of films being around before Deep Blue Sea. But sort of from the early noughties onwards, we, you know, either as kind of DTV releases or these kind of, you know, asylum style releases, there did seem to be a real sort of steady and increasing kind of glut of kind of shark movies um, sort of after this one. So I, I don't know what you uh, think of that particular uh, theory. Well, I think it's there's just been a, an influx in giant creature movies, not necessarily shark ones. I mean, you get the infamous Sharknado and like Sharktopus, that kind of thing. But there's, it's, I think I'm gonna put more credit on Anaconda, actually, a couple of years beforehand, which is similarly amazingly terrible. Follows a similar kind of plot, except it's a giant snake instead of giant sharks, and they eat Jennifer, they eat, they eat John Voight instead of, <laughs> instead of Sam Jackson. So that's, that's the, uh, incredible Oscar winning actor, or Oscar nominated at least actor, who dies in that film, wonderfully. But it's been since then, I think, that we've had these, these giant animal attack films and sharks are one of nature's oldest predators so it kind of makes sense that they be heavily featured in these kinds of films sure yeah i would yeah i think that's a, that's an interesting point about anaconda i might uh it may just be that there was a kind of a boom in these sort of sort of general creature features and so sort of yeah sharks were just an obvious type of predator to kind of exploit for those uh those particular types of films yeah, i mean you got you got lake placid the same year as deep blue sea that's the same kind of thing yeah, and it has that same sort of uh, similar sort of tone between sort of kind of goofy comedy and also kind of ghoulish kind of, you know, blood and, and gore as well. So yeah. uh, clearly uh, kind of, yeah, maybe uh, Deep Blue Sea was just sort of following a kind of a bit of a formula kind of set by uh, some uh, other earlier films. 
Okay, well, I think we better move on to uh, talking about the uh, exploding helicopter action in this film. And that particular key scene takes place uh, early in the film and get to see a CGI helicopter approaching the CGI facility during a particularly furious CGI storm. And the chopper pilot lowers a winch down to collect a stretchered casualty. It's the uh, unfortunate Stellion Skarsgård, who's uh, suddenly uh, an arm short, uh, thanks to the sharks and as he's dangled um, a few feet over the waves the winch suddenly breaks for absolutely no reason and sends him uh, into the uh, ocean Uh, the winch cable is then sort of pulled sharply underwater by a a shark that we can't see and the uh, helicopter is dragged across into the uh, station's control tower where naturally enough the helicopter explodes you know jay what did you uh, think of the uh, chopper fireball action uh, on display in deep blue sea it's it's not like the helicopter explodes it's more like a comet comes down from the sky and destroys everything in sight because this is the biggest explosion i've ever seen it's as though the entire deck is made of c4 because just the whole thing just blows up far more than you would expect it's huge it's great fun it's but it's ridiculous into i don't think that i know that in in movies things tend to explode more often than they would in real life but this is taking it a little bit too far i think this is the explosion here is bigger than than the airplanes blowing up in die hard 2 Yes, and I think in this film that is particularly hard to explain because you've got an, a kind of aquatic base, so which is it's in the middle of the ocean. So obviously it's you know whatever this, as you say, you, you know it looks like it's made of sea four. Well, whatever it's made of, it's still sitting in the middle of the ocean. This scene obviously takes place in the middle of a kind of big tropical storm, so it's lashing down <laughs> with rain. Yep. You know, adding further kind of you know fire retardant you know effects to uh, whatever kind of. Flat materials around yet despite being in the middle of the ocean despite it being you know in the middle of this tropical storm actually hammering down with rain still the combination of sort of helicopter and this control tower yeah contrived to create an absolutely a ridiculously huge explosion which is very sort of hard to hard to explain yeah, but I do like that the explosion has uh, effects later on in the film. For example, there's a, a scene later when they're in the, the elevator shaft trying to climb it up. And you can see at the top there is this big fiery mess that's dropping globules of, of flaming something, flaming surface down upon them. And so the, you've still got the ramifications of the explosion, which, you know, by the time they reach the surface are not there anymore. It's all gone out by that point. But that's that's not important. So I do I do appreciate that the explosion kind of stays with it for the rest of the film. Just doesn't make any sense at the start. And my my main problem with this film, right? We're we're led to believe that everything that happens is a plan of the sharks. Let's just gloss over that point. <laughs> Let's accept that this cannot be because everything that happens happens because the winch sticks in the helicopter. Okay, I've not okay I've because not, I've not thought of this because the, wi- yeah, the winch run with it. Yeah, the winch jams, overheats, and the cable loosens and drops Stellan Skarsgård back into the water. And that's at the point where the sharks grab hold of him and blow everything up. If that winch hadn't had jammed, they'd have got away. And I don't know how the sharks would have tried to, to do anything after that point. You know, wow. The... Wow. <laughs> Basically, what, what we're saying here is that the exploding helicopter is the key narrative device of this entire film. Exactly. I uh, had... 
I don't know how. I, I, you know, I lay claim to being an exploding helicopter expert, but I don't know how I had missed that until this particular moment. This is, this is only, this is the first time I've noticed it. Watching this, <laughs> watching this film before, I've never sat down and analysed any of it. I've just kind of, you know, left my ability to understand what's going on in a different room and just absorbed it. This time I sat down with a notebook and wrote down and paused it an awful lot going, hang on. That wouldn't work because such and such and such and such. How did that shark turn on that oven, etc.? And just my main sticking point was the, the sharks were relying on a winch to stick. Were they waiting for such an event to happen? Were they were they waiting for there to be a big storm and for one of them to be taken into the operating mm. chamber and for the sedatives not to work? Were they waiting for so many things to line up in a row, or did they just were they opportunistic and just took the chance of a lifetime? for this moment i don't know but it doesn't make any sense well it uh, yeah i mean i'm not sure uh, you know maybe maybe the sh- that, maybe that's why the shark only bites off stellion scars guard's arm i don't know but uh, maybe maybe we're attributing too much intelligence <laughs> to these uh, to these sharks certainly I, we can't certainly we can't in- uh, attribute that intelligence to the filmmakers no. uh, that's for sure <laughs> Rennie harlan does not have the intelligence of the sharks in this film that's Let's say that for sure. But that is, uh, yeah, that's an excellent point about the uh, the exploding, uh, the importance of uh, the exploding helicopter in this uh, in this particular uh, film. So I'm glad that we've uh, come to, uh, you know, highlight that important aspect to the uh, the plot of uh, of Deep Blue Sea. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that just about wraps things up for today's show. Um, it just remains for me to say uh, a big thank you to my guest, Jay. Do you want to uh, remind people where you can, uh, where they can find your website and podcast? Yeah, you can find my, my, my website at lifeversusfilm.com. That's lifevsfilm.com. Uh, the podcast is The Lambcast, and you can find me on Twitter at lifeversusfilm or at lambcast. So if you've uh, enjoyed listening to the show, then please uh, check out the Exploding Helicopter website at explodinghelicopter.blogspot.com or you can find us on Twitter at Chopper Fireball. Uh, if you want to get in touch to suggest a film, then you can email us at explodinghelicopter at hotmail.com. It just remains for me to say thanks to Tim for the music. We'll be back soon. And until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters.